0: Navigating through this stagflationary environment with geopolitical uncertainty will lead to higher volatility.
1: The interesting point here is which countries and which regions can actually benefit from this rerouting as you're talking about.
2: We are concerned more about European growth slowdown and, and in fact are expecting a moderate recession in Europe.
3: Hello. It's been a month since Russia began its invasion of Ukraine. And as the human cost of the war continues, the knock-on effects for the global economy are also becoming clearer. Disrupted supply chains, soaring energy prices and volatile markets. How can investors navigate this uncertainty? And what does this mean for asset allocation? I'm Carsten Röhmheld, filling in for Richard Edgar. And this is Rich Pickings, Fidelity's Asset Allocation Podcast. (laughs) With me today are Salman Ahmed, Global Head of Macro and Strategic Asset Allocation, Eugene Philalitis, Head of Multi-Asset Investment Management for Europe, and Andresa Tessin, a Senior Server and Analyst with a focus on emerging markets. Thank you all for joining me. Thank you, Thank you. Awesome. Hello. It's been a very volatile start of the year with the conflict in Ukraine, COVID and rising inflation continuing to impact what many had hoped would be a road back to normality and an end to the pandemic. If you had to sum up your outlook for the year ahead in one word, what would it be and why? The challenge here is I'm looking for something more inspirational than volatile and uncertain. Andressa, you go first
1: if it's just one word, I would say inflationary. And why? Because obviously, with all disruptions we are seeing uh, in the commodities universe, this is going to affect the whole global world. It's not really emerging markets, it's the world in general.
3: Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Salman, what would be your word?
2: Well, I'll connect with uh, uh, Andressa, whereby I agree with the core view that this is inflationary world. And however, I will go ahead and as a step forward and say there are indications of a regime shift as well. Uh, in terms of what we have been used to over the last uh, many, many years, the COVID shock itself was a very, uh, you know, uh, regime shift in itself. But what has happened over the last few weeks has put another strong layer to that regime shift. And, and our job would be to calibrate that regime shift going forward.
3: Let's put regime shift as one word then. Okay, Eugene, so what would be your word?
0: Well, I'll uh, borrow a word from the Fed and say that, you know, 2022 will be transitory. We know that 2022 will finish and we we can even have a date on that. However, on a more serious note, I'd say that one word that I would use is upheaval. I think the changes that we've seen uh, this year and that will have ramifications for the medium and longer term as well, um, are going to be quite, quite material. So these are trends that have been in place for a while. But the uh, the geopolitics, the the invasion of Ukraine, I think, will uh, accelerate some of those and actually bring them forward in, in the minds of the, the, the politicians, people and, and investors.
3: Very much on the point and a very good start. Staying with the big picture, Salman, your team has been looking at some of the potential short and longer term risks globally as a result of the war in Ukraine. You've created a monitoring tool which can track the economic impact of the conflict and potential scenarios. Could you please take us through the components of that?
2: Sure, Karsten. So uh, the three key components of that tracker tool, which we have been uh, working on and and, and sharing and and working together with our investment teams, has been understanding the nature of this shock, uh, which has come through as a result of the uh, Ukraine war. Uh, And then the three components are whether this shock is an economic shock when it comes to commodities prices because of the role of Russia specifically in terms of uh, uh, it's, its very dominant role, I should say, in, in commodity markets. Uh, what are the financial sector linkages implications because of the sanctions? Uh, and we have seen some unprecedented sanctions uh, being uh, obviously deployed, and, and it's not uh, over yet. There's still a talk of further sanctions. Uh, and then thirdly is how that it, then it links in terms of future scenarios. So in terms of what happens on the ground in terms of military side of things, uh, in terms of sanctions, and, and the wider geopolitical environment. And, and, and as Eugene was mentioning, the key macro force what we think has longevity is that it accelerates the trends which we we're already seeing, which were more inflationary or stagflationary, And that goes back to the commodity or macro commodity channel which is active uh, uh, as a result of Ukraine war. And that's what our tracker tool is doing in terms of filling a framework so that as new information comes in, we can pass it in terms of its short term and medium term implications.
3: And when you look at this tool, um, how is the data feeding into your current base case scenario?
2: So we entered the year with a 50% probability of stagflation as a base case. Uh, and that was driven by what, what had happened as a result of the COVID shock, the supply side disruptions, We did not believe the Fed uh, that this inflation issue was transitory. The work we did with our bottom-up analysts last year showed uh, that there are some very persistent forces in place, and we were concerned about the inflation expectation channel. However, uh, the shock which has come as a result of Russia-Ukraine war is through the commodity channel, where there is potentially a short-term shortage of commodities as a result of the disruptions or sanctions, but also medium-term implications as... Russia is shut down from the system because uh Russia is a very dominant source of commodity exports in the system. So we have increased our probability of our stagflation for the next 6 to 12 months to 80% whilst we are still think that it is still temporary in the sense that we are not looking for at the moment multi-year stagflationary risks but we we are concerned. We are updating the tool on real time basis as new information comes through and so far What we have seen and the news flow we have seen still remains consistent with our base case that at least for the next six to 12 months, we are likely to be in a stagflation environment with a very high risk of a recession, at least a moderate recession in Europe.
3: Eugene, if I can come to you, how does the complex picture outlined by Salman right now feed into Fidelity's core view?
0: Coming into this event, uh, we already had high and persistent inflation in the Western world uh, already. And now we've also got Elevated supply chain shocks. So this this crisis uh, with the sanctions on Russia, we believe leads to you know a higher risk of supply side shocks and downward pressure on on growth. I mean, you just have to look at market returns year to date. You know, equity, credit, uh, you know, government bonds—they're all down. That that's typical of what we expect to see in a stagflationary environment. And commodities are obviously uh, you know uh, through the roof this puts a squeeze on consumers and consumer spending uh, at the same time as we've got central banks remaining quite hawkish uh, you know and and uh, pushing for tighter financial conditions we've also got uh, our proprietary risk indicators which have swung back to bearish and while broad sentiment and positioning indicators uh, are more neutral we've uh, we've turned more cautious on risk so this so while we were cautious on on risk but mainly through credit. At the start of the year, we're now uh, underweight both equities and credit within our core asset allocation views, um, and we're neutral on duration because we feel that while there would be, there could be some defensiveness from from government bonds, we think that uh, inflation and in central banks in the near term are are a headwind. Uh, we also hold a you know a long dollar view uh, in terms of our view on it as a safe haven asset, but also it could benefit from a more hawkish Fed as uh, you know rates rise and the rate differential benefits uh, benefits the dollar. Uh, we do see some increasing value in emerging market assets, uh, especially and and sort of Asia Pacific as well, but we do also focus uh, and, and, you know, in line with uh, Salman's comments on Europe, we see challenges ahead for European assets. But our medium term look is is still a bit more constructive. You know, we think that earnings, um, uh, company earnings are still pretty robust, more broadly across the world. Unemployment is, is low and there are excess savings uh, in on consumer balance sheets that, that can still be spent. Uh, and we're looking for signs to be able to you know take a look for opportunities to redeploy some of that capital back into into risk assets but in the near term we see that there is heightened uncertainty so navigating through the stagflationary environment with geopolitical uncertainty will lead to higher volatility possibly lower returns for the months ahead so while earnings and valuations may broadly be supportive for risk assets. We think that the macro factors are the bigger driver of risk here at the moment.
3: I'd like to follow up in one question uh, with regards to China. We've seen a lot of volatility in China over the past week. Has anything changed in your outlook towards China?
0: Well coming into the year we were we, we saw china as a bit of a diversified to the rest of the portfolio because uh, china was at a different point in the cycle they had started easing uh, policy in comparison to the the federal reserve and the ecb which were on a on a tightening path and we we'd already seen a lot of stress in the China asset markets, so uh, both on the on the credit side and on the equity side, you know, we saw a lot of stress last year on the back of the increased regulation um, and uh, you know and policies that have been been in place uh, in relation to, to common prosperity. So we thought that uh, some of those uh, differentiating factors would uh, be an attractive diversifying role in, in in the portfolio. Clearly, there's been a lot of volatility. Uh, in the last few weeks, especially in some of the uh, the tech area, and and some of the risks linked to, um, uh, you know, to to Russia and and possibility of uh, you know sanctions on China. But we um you know we still see that some of the policy support that is uh, that is there does give um, at least puts puts a floor on some of the China assets, especially on the equity side. Um, so I think. Last week was the first time we saw some policy directed to putting a floor on some of the volatility that, that we've seen in markets so far this year.
3: For sure. Andressa, we certainly haven't forgotten about you. How are other emerging markets faring at the moment? Um, they tend to suffer in a risk of environment traditionally. Has this been the case this time around as well?
1: Yeah, Karsten, I must say, emerging markets uh, this time around, obviously, we have a very mixed picture you do have those countries that are closer to the, the conflict. So you have the CE region, emerging market CE region that is the one that is probably suffering the most. Uh, not only for fears of what could happen with the conflict, how it's going to be extended in the conflict, but also because they are the ones that are more dependent on Russia as well, in the Russian gas as well. So you do have a mixed picture for the rest of the regions in emerging market because then on the other side, so you have sea as I mentioned the ones that are probably hit the most and on the other side of the spectrum you have Latin America that is the one that is is benefiting the most, and why is that? Is uh, not only because you're far from the conflict, but also is a region that export commodities. So, with the disruption in products, and in, in commodities and prices soaring everywhere, you are somehow benefiting countries in Latin America. Some of them are oil importer, but some of them are exporters of copper, the exports of all the mining's, and um, and this is definitely benefiting Latin America. So, it's not all uh, in going downhill from here. We have regions that actually benefited from that. Uh, But also within um, the spectrum, so we have the worst ones performing the worst, which is the sea, the ones that performing the best, which is Latam, the ones in between, um, they are suffering from different things. For example, you you do have uh, uh, Africa uh, facing this Absolutely soaring food prices affecting uh, their communities, affecting inflation, which obviously is going to affect everybody. But you do have a history there. Um, the Arab Spring that is started this way as well in uh, 2013. You also was led because of uh, food prices going higher. You have to be concerned with countries that had the weight of food prices in their CPI basket at very high levels, and this could actually bring some disruptions in terms of the society. So there's a political angle. Here here for these countries, most likely those that are um, more vulnerable, I would say, politically speaking, because you could have actually some riots happening there. On the economic front, some countries like Egypt and Ghana, for example, they have already depreciated their currencies, uh, hike interest rates massively. So this is trying to prevent further escalation to food, uh, from the food inflation into, into prices. So there is some attempt to contain this impact, but uh, how far this can go, we, we just don't know. There's still a lot of uncertainty, and I think that's, uh, that's why in between this spectrum that I was talking about, between C, Central and Eastern Europe, and Latin America, there's this ones in the middle that we really need to be paying attention
3: are countries that are commodity-rich now being taken much more seriously going forward? How long could that time last?
1: So within emerging markets, obviously, you have one of the biggest uh, commodity exporters. And uh, and especially Latin America, for example, which is a region that now everybody's looking back again. And, and I always joke that now Argentina finally is coming back again, being the spotlight. Because if you really think about, for example, what is going on in lithium market which is the one that has been already being focused given that we're all moving on from oil. And I think this conflict is forcing us to move our attention from oil and definitely have some kind of impulse into into renewables or into into EV. And you can see that the triangle in Latin America, you have uh, Bolivia, you have Chile and Argentina that are sitting on the biggest reservoir of lithium.
3: I want to focus now on one of the most severe issues facing the global economy We know supply chains were already suffering as a result of the pandemic, but to what extent has the war made this worse? Fidelity's analysts have been talking to companies across their sectors to find out. Earlier, I spoke to Fiona O'Neill, Director of Global Equity Research, about what they have been hearing. Hello, Fiona. Thanks a lot for joining me.
4: Good afternoon, Carsten.
3: We know from our annual analyst survey that ongoing supply chain disruptions were an area of concern as a result of the pandemic. What sense are analysts getting now of the potential impact of the war?
4: Well, interestingly, in our most recent monthly survey, when we asked our analysts about their concerns about supply chain, they really did highlight the hangover from COVID still, and also the pressure from input supply shortages as being Factors that were still impacting the supply chains negatively before the war really uh, kicked in, if you will. So when we talked to the analysts and, and surveyed them this last time, it was actually the first working week of the war. Um, and so what that really underscores to me is that we came into this situation in Ukraine and Russia very much in a quite fragile state when it comes to supply chains. Supply chains were just beginning to heal and we were just starting to talk positively about maybe how supply chains might be in much better shape come the second half of the year. Of course, now we have the Ukraine conflict to worry about. And so when we then went on and probed the analysts and pushed further and asked them to think through the second and the third order impacts of um, what is going on in Ukraine, supply chain concerns leapt to the top of their concerns along with cost pressures. And so finally, it's worth highlighting that on the back of that concern, what we have seen is a huge increase in our expectations for non-labour costs to continue to spike.
3: And how does the picture vary across sectors?
4: So I think unsurprisingly, we are seeing the biggest cost increases coming through in materials and in industrials. And that is where we saw, you know, incrementally with every month that we've run the survey, we have seen a tick up in the cost pressures there. And then this most recent March survey has shown a huge increase in expected non-labour cost pressures in materials and industrials.
3: And what are our analysts hearing from companies? How, How prepared are they?
4: So the picture is very mixed according to the company that we talk to, according to the sector. That uh, that company is operating in. I think actually one of my favourite quotes from the last week was when we talked to a company and they really described this as like playing whack-a-mole. Every time you think you've dealt with a problem, and you want a new one emerges. We're still very much in the early days of trying to put the picture together uh, and really look across all geographies, across all sectors, and really from the beginning to the end of supply chains, but maybe a few anecdotes that might be interesting. Firstly, we heard from a bottling company uh, that they are hedged in terms of input costs, but when you probe further, great, that takes care of the financial side of things. What they're not hedged against, what they cannot predict, is the availability of the materials that they need uh, for the bottling process. Similarly, when we think about the industrial space and within that the airline sector, Russia and Ukraine are third and fifth globally for titanium production, which is absolutely key uh, for airline production. There are ample supplies on hand for now, so we are told, but you know the companies are very much scrambling to find alternatives. The other issue is about whether you can actually maintain aircraft that are sat within Russia and are essentially stuck there. And at what point do you have to write off those assets and who then carries the bill for that?
3: What's your impression on the inventories right now? Um, How's the situation there, Fiona?
4: Again, that really depends who you talk to. So we've got automotive manufacturers uh, stressing that the supply chain disruption from what's going on in Ukraine is manageable, that they had started to rebuild some inventory, that chip shortages starting to be behind them and things were looking more rosy for uh, the latter part of 2022 and many of them are still quite confident in that outlook. On the other hand you have uh, car retailers who are much more concerned. They talk about semi still being a problem, that you know they expect their supply of inventory not now to normalize until the end of 2022, early 23. So that's a nine month uh, further delay, if you will.
3: Director of Global Equity Research, Fiona O'Neill. Salman, we heard at the end there Fiona talking about the auto industry that's been severely hampered, and it's not just car manufacturers. It's across the whole value chain, even with companies without direct exposure to Russia or Ukraine. For example, car seat manufacturers will also face a hit in demand if the cars aren't rolling off production lines. So these second and third order effects are really starting to come through now, aren't they?
2: Definitely. And and actually as Fiona mentioned, uh we had supply chain disruptions because of COVID already in the pipeline. Having said that, some of the top down business surveys were showing some kind of healing happening. So if you look at, for example, the ISM delivery indices, they, they were bouncing back from their worst levels. Uh and, and, and we were seeing signs uh from Fed commentary, for example, which were highlighting some uh, uh you know healing going on. However, uh the nature of the Ukraine war and the supply disruptions does create another specific supply chain shock which is uh, which is now concentrated on some of the commodities where Russia and Ukraine were so dominant and they were already under stress because of the lockdowns and then the reopening and the fact that goods sector was the one which saw so much demand as the staying home uh, trend uh, came into play so certainly this is another shock and and the duration of it will depend on a, a lot on what happens obviously on the geopolitical front
3: Eugene, how as a portfolio manager do you map or take into account these ripple effects?
0: well Carsten, I mean talking to you know the the pms and analysts in the in the team, these supply chain issues are are most likely going to feed through directly through the commodity and, and the energy complex and that 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 's first off but you know as uh, as Andressa touched on earlier, you know we still haven 't seen the impact from from food prices and while russia that's that 's important, and any disruption will have a significant impact on Europe in terms of you know the the supply of energy and the impact that would have on industry and, and consumption but food is is a much bigger there nearly thirty percent of the you know grain uh, uh, in, in terms of exports, so this could have massive knock on effects uh, on 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 a much larger uh, you know, part of the uh, population as well as on inflation. So the way that we've been thinking about it is to tilt the portfolio uh, towards areas that we think are are resilient to eleva- elevated commodity prices. Uh, so in equities, for instance, we have moved underweight Europe because it is most vulnerable to the immediate supply chain issues. Although the economic linkages between Russia and Europe, uh, excluding the supply of uh, of energy, are quite small. You know, trade is quite small. The, we've, we're already starting to see impact on consumer confidence, you know, investment sentiment. You no, know, you can still buy energy from Russia, but there is that self-sanctioning because nobody wants to be in a situation where they have to explain their actions today in a year or two time when, you know, we, we don't know what the regulatory environment will be like. Um, and also we've seen, you know, significant terms of trade shock. So the, the you know, the cost of uh, energy uh, to, to European economies in particular while we might see some fiscal support coming through. We haven't, we just haven't seen that in any scale yet. At the same time, we've been moving over with You know, Andressa talked about uh, Latin America. You know, high degree of commodity exports. It could be the next, uh, you know, commodity superpower. Uh, but also areas like Pacific, Japan, for example, Australia. There are some parts of, uh, uh, you know, Asia, um, you know, ASEAN, the sort of uh, Southeast Asia region in particular. You know, countries like Indonesia, which. Can also benefit from high commodity prices. They're also reopening their economy from the COVID uh, uh, cycle, and you know we could see a return to tourism as well. You know, if there's more demand for, for, for you know for services, we move away from spending on goods. And at the moment, you know, valuations in those markets are you know undemanding relative to you know the the, the broader uh, EM complex as well as to their own history. But you know, there are there are risks. Uh, especially linked to, to to higher food prices, so we're navigating through this uh, you know um through these effects and looking for where the next points of weakness might be, whether it's you know European retailers or uh, you know uh, other areas that might benefit as well from these supply chain issues.
3: Andresa, how much are these supply chain disruptions impacting emerging markets? Are you seeing much in a way of reordering or rerouting in those regions?
1: The interesting point here is which countries and which regions can actually benefit from this rerouting as you're talking about. Um, I could see already from the last couple of days, I can see literally some more interest from China getting into Latin America, for example, especially for the lithium, as I mentioned briefly, but also aluminium. And you can see that a lot, specifically Latam, because it's the one that is the the region that it is more uh, export, a commodity exporter, uh, it, it had already been shifting from U.S., exports to U.S. into China. So this relationship has already been strengthening because you had several years or even a decade of governments that were more towards the left in Latin America. Then we had this li- little break that we're living at the moment. And now you can see m- some of these countries, especially Latin America, moving back into the leftist or, or more populist governments. And um, and that's why this relationship with, uh, with China, it, I think is still gonna be strong. Um, On the other hand, if you ask me what is the relationship with Ukraine and Russia on the export side, it was very limited in the emerging markets other than Central and Eastern Europe. So if you see Asia or if you see Latin America or Africa, it's a very small, it's less than 1% of GDP for all the other regions other than C. So the disruption is not because there won't be any... Oil flying in because they they were not really importing oil, for example. They were not really importing wheat, for example. Um, But mostly because of the of the crisis that we're going to be facing now with inflation going higher as food prices goes higher. So it's it's the risk that we may face actually a demand slowdown, as Salman was talking about, led by high inflation. So that's the concern. But you can see how some regions are also realigning with their demands. And uh, I would say I can see... LATAM actually is still realigned to Asia. I can see CE trying to realign with Europe, but potentially more with uh, with, with LATAM. And even uh, if you see GCC, which is a region that we didn't talk that much, uh, there has been a lot of incentive for GCC to increase their business. Uh, UAE, for example, is talking about that they just have 12% of their imports come from LATAM. They could increase this massively if they want to increase and reroute part of the, uh, of the grains import, for example, from Ukraine and Russia. Uh, from and then it would come from Latin America.
3: Salman, bringing this all together, how are supply chain disruptions and rising energy prices also feeding into the wider inflationary picture?
2: So, uh, Castro, on that front, our inflation forecasts are being revised up, obviously, as you can imagine, obviously, a lot of uncertainty where oil settles in the next six to 12 months. But we are using the 1970s template uh, to guide us. Uh, there are important differences here, of course. Uh, the oil intensity of the global system is much lower right now, um, and and therefore the growth shock uh, potentially for for countries like us is is manageable. Uh, as as Andresa mentioned, the 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 specific Europe. Russia links means that Europe is more exposed. So some countries like Germany, for example, around 60% of the gas comes from, from Russia. Uh, so those there are some country-specific angles there. But overall, we are uh, expecting 100 to 150 basis point higher inflation than we are right now. So, so we are already at around eight uh, percent in in the U.S. seven point nine. So we are, you know, we can see a nine percent handle uh, in, in in the next few months. Of course, a lot will depend on oil prices uh, and 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 the extent of the growth damage. Uh, and and we are concerned more about European growth slowdown and and in fact are expecting a moderate recession in Europe, uh, which will then start to pull inflation down. But in the next few months, uh, uh, we are going to see uh, upward pressure on inflation.
3: So if stagflation is still the base case Eugene what's the time frame for that position and how should an investor be prepared for it
0: Well there, there aren't that many historical episodes but Simon mentioned the 70s playbook and yeah, I, th- I think that's the best one for for us to follow it can take a long time for, you know, for the impacts uh, from, from a shock like this to, to feed through in terms of earnings and guidance. And, you know, it took nearly 12 months for the S&P to react to, you know, from the initial oil shock uh, back in the 70s. And, you know, we're, we're, today we're in an environment where inflation is already high and central banks are tightening policy into that, you know, slower growth uh, picture. Um, And liquidity is being withdrawn at the same time. You know, we've had uh, the end of uh, QE and tapering and we're going to be talking about QT. So maybe in a world where, you know, we want everything now and we want next day and same day delivery, things might happen faster in a more accelerated way. But we, we do stay cautious and stagflation is not a great environment for most uh, assets, whether it's bonds or equities or, or, or credit, and so we think that uh, investors should be looking at, at the way that we are looking at portfolios, is to look at you know uh, commodity resilient or inflation resilient assets. Um, we think that maybe cash on a temporary basis might be a good place to you know to park to keep some some powder dry as opportunities develop uh commodities maybe such as gold uh can be can be helpful as a hedge against uh, you know th- this uh, this inflation but also commodities are a bit of a coincident uh, or, you know, maybe leading indicator for, for inflation as they do tend to feed into this inflation. So they may start giving back some of the gains that we've seen uh, and which would which could feed through to, to lower inflation. But also when we're looking at uh, in fixed income assets, there are opportunities in floating rate assets, uh, which are, you know, where you don't have the impact of higher yields and if interest rates do rise, then you will see the the income from these assets being protected. Uh, China government bonds have been the best performing uh, government bond market in uh, you know th- this year and and last year as well in an er- in an environment where you've seen developed market yields rise and that's because you know the central bank there is easing and yields are actually nominally high and and giving you some some level even if it's a small level of, of a positive real yield. Uh, but also real assets uh, like uh, you know like real estate would be would be an option where the income from those assets could also benefit from uh, from from inflation they do have some inflation linkage Um, infrastructure is another asset to look at or or renewable energy even where you know the 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 cash flows from those assets do tend to um, have some some inflation linkage so it's about looking for diversity from your, your traditional assets that have done over the last 10 years pretty well uh, and looking at, you know, positioning the portfolio for a, for, a, for a different regime um, going forward.
3: With that economic picture in mind, Andresa, where's the impact being felt across governments and central banks in emerging markets?
1: The reaction function to tackle inflation is going to be interesting to see how different regions, different countries are going to tackle uh, on average, emerging markets is the one that is more uh, vulnerable because food prices is a big weight of the index. And, uh, and this is more so even in CE and in African countries. So that's really, the pass-through is going to be very quick. Um, so the reaction function of the central banks would be immediately to hike. But some central banks would feel that this is transitory or would try to balance with the reason uh, about growth, how growth is going to look like in 12 months from now. Um, so there are a lot of uh, ways that central banks are trying to tackle this. But I would say, overall, there would be more. We should expect interest rates to be hiked. On the other hand, some governments in emerging markets, they're going through elections. So you can see Serbia is going through elections. You have Colombia, Brazil, and... um, you don't want to face elections in a scenario that you're going to have central bank hiking interest rates, even though you, you should assume that it's independent. But obviously, there will be some kind of a, a counterbalance from the government. The government would give some subsidies, for example, for the population. So this mitigates the work of the central bank, undermines the work of the central bank. If the governments are going to be giving some subsidies or tax cuts, like Poland, for example, has been giving tax cuts. Brazil has been f- uh, flirting with the idea of, of giving some subsidies or some social transfers to the population. So overall, I think what we're seeing in emerging markets is that some of the governments, if they can or if they can't, even if their fiscal stance is already tight enough that they cannot really do anything because they don't have any surpluses. But they are trying to mitigate the impact of the central bank hikes and uh, and the food price impact on disposable income via either subsidies or tax cuts. So this is definitely going to affect their balance sheet. But on the other hand, you need to add the fact that statistically speaking, higher inflation Makes your balance sheet look good. So some countries that are potentially on the on the verge of being uh, downgraded to from IG into junk, they could be saved this year if inflation is actually higher. Because inflation does this kind of a trick in the very short term. It tricks you, the fiscal side. It can make the revenues look bigger, the nominal revenues, whereas the the expenses, if there's no increase in salaries, become stable. So in a very uh, short-term basis, the fiscal side looks good. And this could prevent some countries like Panama, for example, to be downgraded into junk. You can have some other countries that would be uh, worried about their debt to GDP but this is also going to be looking better because your your nominal GDP will look higher. Therefore, your ratio is going to be looking lower. So it's a very obviously short-term view in a very myopic view, but uh, but I would say that a lot of countries will be facing this in emerging markets. It's going to be looking better than the reality is, which is not that good. And um, so the focus for us on emerging markets in terms of central banks and government is that I'll be looking at central banks that are doing the right job, hiking interest rates, but I'll be looking at countries countries where the government is trying to mitigate these effects from the food prices to giving subsidies and, and tax cuts, which is going to somehow have an impact on the fiscal side, maybe not for this year, but in the years ahead.
3: Now, you've all painted a pretty gloomy picture. Let's try to end on a more positive note. Andresa, could you start by telling me some of the regions you think could have a brighter outlook in the coming six to eight months?
1: Yeah, sure. I think I mentioned a lot about Latin America here. It is the the commodities export the world, and uh, and at these prices, I think it's quite good as long as the demand, the global demand doesn't get uh, affected that much. But at least in the short term, that's what I would say is the region to be to be looking at. Another region that I would say as well is Middle East. I mean, as I mentioned, there's a lot of potential for investments uh, there been growing, not only because there will be more relationships between Latin America and Middle East, for example, but also some banks that have been leaving the sea region for fears of the conflict that could be actually relocating into the Middle East. You can see a hub there probably been up there on on the, on the banking sector. So, Middle East and Latam, uh, I would say, is the region that, uh, that definitely is the bright spot at this stage.
3: Eugene, are there any sectors or themes that stand to do well with this backdrop?
0: If we look at sectors, we think healthcare is, is, is an area that has actually considerable pricing power. Uh, and in an environment where we're seeing inflation, uh, the you know there is the you know the possibility for you know for allocating to a sector that has you know attractive valuations uh, relative to its history and relative to the market, uh, and you know w- will benefit from an increase in demand for elective uh, procedures and, 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 and surgeries as we come out of COVID. On a on a longer term view, from a from a theme perspective. Two areas that we would highlight that could benefit from these uh, sort of um, tectonic shifts uh, and, and looking through the, the short term are renewable energy. So, you know, companies that are exposed to, to the renewable as we move away from reliance on, on fossil fuels, uh, these trends were already in place. But I think the events, especially in Europe, will accelerate the move towards, uh, you know, th- that sector. And the other one is um, cybersecurity. I think cybersecurity is an area that, you know, we we talk a lot about and we, you know, we we're all kind of, you know, exposed on an individual basis but also on a corporate and and, and national basis uh that uh, you know the spending in cybersecurity needs to be significantly higher going forward.
3: Salman, where do you see signs of optimism?
2: Uh, I would highlight that China government bond market has been the store of value for dollar investors since the pandemic began. So uh, there has to be a nuance when we are thinking about China. Uh, and, and that characteristic, which is you know, role of a diversifier, I think Eugene mentioned that in his comments earlier, we think will sustain. It's, it's a big market, will continue to grow, uh, and it, 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 it reflects volatility and risk features which are often associated with G4 uh, bond markets. Uh, and then also more tactically and cyclically, if uh, as policy actions gather pace in China, uh, of course the policy intentions have been shared, Uh, I think there is reason to be cautiously optimistic uh, there. But of course, volatility will remain high. And this obviously goes back to the word I chose, which is one word, regime shift, (laughs) dash regime shift. (laughs) We have to be careful about uh, or, or cognizant about.
3: Now, there are some bright sides after all. It's nearly time to bring this month's podcast to a close, but not before we play hot cakes and hot potatoes. What would you buy like a hot cake? What would you drop like a hot potato? Andressa, you start.
1: So I'm going to mention actually uh, uh, the Latin America region, as I've been talking through my whole presentation actually today. But it is really the region that is going to be flourishing more from here. And uh, I would say oil over there or the lithium, you're going to have a lot of commodities really still flourishing and it's a very small market here still. Uh, My hot potato would be countries that are dependent on tourism from Ukraine and Russia. This is one thing. Uh, Regions that would suffer a lot from food prices and have no central bank strong enough to be able to control inflation and when I do these two analysis together I come to the conclusion that Turkey for example for me is the one that uh, uh, is a very weak one. Central Bank has not been hiking interest rates, inflation was already very high prior to the conflict the Central Bank was actually cutting interest rates here uh, and they are highly dependent on tourism from Russia so you, you do see uh, the two combinations of a higher inflation less inflows in a country that is highly dependent to finance their accounts with the dollar from abroad, I think it's a very tricky situation for them.
0: Eugene, what's your hot cake? I mean, sticking with the theme uh, that we've been talking about and, and, you know, uh, inflation and looking for inflation protection, building inflation resilience in in portfolios, I would be looking at at real assets. But I wouldn't necessarily be um, thinking of of commodities because, uh, you know, I think commodities can can be that short-term hedge. Uh, you, you know, you, they build that that risk premium pretty quickly. But then, if you know, we move to a, a world of normalization, they'll lose that in a in a, in a hurry. It's thinking more about those the, those longer-term, uh, you know, tectonic shifts that we've been talking about. And so, uh, I would be thinking of, you know, assets like uh, infrastructure, renewable energy, where you do have that, uh, you know, that 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 demand, uh, and where the you know the, the cash flows are are inflation linked in terms of a hot potato i would look at european assets uh, and at the moment uh, you know we are um selling uh, you know the european exposure uh, across portfolios um just given that uh, you know we think that the the downside risks are are still not fully priced in in some areas
3: Salman, where are your hot cakes and hot potatoes
2: so, on the cake side, uh, actually, I'm hungry now a little bit after <laughs> listening to their cakes. Uh, so, uh, on, on the cake side, I, I'm going to uh, highlight, I think, uh, cautiously optimistic, as I mentioned, on China equities. I think these policy intentions, as they turn into actions, I think can can really uh, uh, start to uh, change the trend. And, and, and China can once again decouple Uh, with the the rest of the world uh, in terms of what's happening, for example, on monetary policy as well, where the rest of the world is tightening and China will probably be easing. So that's something to keep an eye on. Uh, On potatoes, to be honest with you, I am spoiled for choice uh, right now uh, because there are so many (laughs) at the moment. Uh, But I would reinforce Eugene's point on European assets uh, given the proximity to the risk uh, and and the fact that uh, uh, this is now turning into, so far seems like turning into a more longer term conflict, uh, which means that the economic disruptions uh, may only escalate.
3: So that's all we have time for this month. Uh, Thank you to Salman, Eugene and Andresa for joining me today and to Fiona O'Neill. And thank you for listening. If you'd like to read more about any of the topics we've discussed, please go to your local Fidelity website or to fidelityinternational.com. We've added some links in the description for the latest articles from Salman, including the tracker. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, then please like, share and subscribe. The producer today was Holly Eastman with additional technical support from Alex Wilcox. From all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied upon by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without the prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up,
4: so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.